Welcome back to the KickCast podcast episode uh, number four. So it's been a while since we've done a podcast, not a lot of news in the preceding weeks. Uh, within the past week, it's been news, 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 a lot of topics to cover uh, from the A-League rebrand announced today as at the time of recording from kit launches to um, Sashmus all the way uh, to a, a stadium spat between South Melbourne and A League Club West or A League Men Club West United. It's gonna take a lot. It's gonna take a, a while to get used to, um, and uh, and more. So uh, today, joining me on the Kickcast podcast, uh, we have first timer Lucas Ronaldo, uh, Channel Seven reporter uh, Robbie Cornthwaite's best mate, and uh, one of the best young journalists in the country. How are you doing? Uh, I'm great, thanks, Neil. I'll, uh, I don't think I'll ever get away from that in my intro, but uh, yeah, great to be on. Great to be on for the first time, and uh, thanks for having me. And we've got resident uh, football transfer extraordinaire, uh, the, the man who who has uncovered new information on Roderick Ramanda by virtue of looking at Pedro Santos's Instagram page, Thomas Williams. Hello, everyone. It's good to be back. Very much looking forward to this podcast. I wouldn't call myself the the transfer guru just yet. I'd hate to steal Shannon's thunder, but um, <laughs> but. Uh, Baby steps, and we'll get there eventually. I'm sure. Absolutely. So I think we'll start off with the A League rebrand at 7 a.m. this morning. Uh, there was a press release coming from the APL uh, stating uh, that there has been a rebrand of the uh, the A Leagues. So we'll just read a bit uh, through this. Uh, Australian football has revealed its new identity with men's, women's, and youth leagues being brought together under unified A Leagues banner. Uh, recasting the men's and women's elite competitions are part as partners at the top of the game. The A-Leagues will use football's position as the country's most inclusive sport to grow the game for everyone. Uh, they talk about how the social medias will be uh, sort of unified in, in the coming months with the new A-League website and also the uh, digital home of, hub of football that they're due to complete, I believe, end of October. Um, it, 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 caught, it, it caught many people by surprise. Uh, not for myself, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, if you did see the, the the leak from Melbourne City's kit release last week, um, you would have seen that it said A leagues. So uh, I'm sure we couldn't have really guessed the this whole dramatic rebranding. But it does really pose a question as to, uh, you know, the status that women's football has in this country. And I think to unify it under all uh, one banner is fantastic. Also, they released a new logo. I'm not sure if you guys realized um, that that actually has been the main topic of conversation uh, this week um, with uh, Lucas. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you were acquainted to Adelaide Building Consultants. I am but... now. <laughs> oh, you are now. Okay, well, there you go. Um, they've obviously, uh, it's a very similar logo to them. Well, if not the same, it's identical. But um, taking all of that into account, it's it's a huge moment for the game. Um, Lucas, I think we'll start off with you. Uh, y- your thoughts on this uh, dramatic rebranding? Yeah, we'll get to we'll get to the logo in a second. Obviously, uh, the, there's a bit of controversy around that, but as a whole, this the concept of bringing it all under the A League's banner, like you say, we'll get some time to get used to saying men's and women's. Um, I think it's great. I did. I think it's great, and I think if any other competition were to start their league now, this is exactly the way they'd go to make a blanket between both codes, uh, between both men's and uh, women's. And, uh, yeah, I think it's a great step for the game. Um, I'm not sure. I haven't seen if we're going to start retrospectively referring to the what is now A-League women's. 
if we're saying that someone's a A League champion, are we or was a W League champion, and now we're going to say A League champion? I feel like there's going to be a few teething issues of us getting used to saying it, but I think it's a great step. But on the badge, but you know, football fans notoriously don't like change, um, so it might take a bit of time to get used to. Um, I think a general rule of thumb, Neil, you mentioned that I'm a journalist guru. You're you're the marketing guru. Um, is do something that a <laughs> yeah, do a logo that a, a, a child can draw. Do a yeah, logo literally. I, I mentioned yeah, I mentioned that today. And I, what I said was, I think um, you know, I was sort of bringing a lot of my sort of marketing knowledge into it, lack thereof, um, stating that it's 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 like new look for the game, and it's really hitting brand equity and customer acquisition. You know, if you're able to communicate the value of offering in the form of a of a of, of a football, which is, represents the circle, I think, and also the slash that represents Australia. You've seen the memeing on Twitter and, and social media, like for crying out loud, my, um, my Twitter name is now, uh, what you call NE with the league logo L Simons, you know, like that's just, it, it's, it's, it's tokenism. It's fantastic. And I think it's something we all really need to embrace. And I think, yeah, there's going to be apathy for everything. I, I, I personally like the old late league logo. I have grown to like this one after I've seen it, um on jerseys but uh enough of me talking uh tom what are your thoughts yeah i i think it i actually really like the minimalist design of the logo i think it's really recognizable which is important um obviously like little kids will be able to draw it i think the most important part about this rebranding is the actual um the unified approach that they're taking to the A-League and the, the formerly known W-League to have them under the bracket of A-League men and A-League women, especially given that the Matildas in particular is one of the biggest footballing products in Australia. I think beside the Socceroos, you, you've got the Socceroos and you've got the Matildas as the two biggest footballing products that the, that Australia has to offer, really. And I think you only have to look towards the Olympics as evidence of that and the viewing numbers achieved by the, by the Matildas. So I think really ensuring that the Australian footballing public can harness what is relatively an untapped market in terms of the, um, the A-League women is a really important step forward, both for growing the game at a grassroots level in terms of young women getting more involved in football but also ensuring that the league itself grows. And I think by ensuring that they're unified, you're essentially um, you're essentially assisting the growth of both the A-League men and the A-League women by unifying them. So I think it's a really cool approach. I think as well, given the new TV deal and the new dawn for Australian football, it's cool just to have a bit of a refresh as well. So I think it was... Um, it's nice. It's going to take some getting used to, as Lucas said, but um, I'm sure it will be a good move in the long run. In fact, on the Key360 website, uh, we've also changed um, our tabs. We now have men's football and women's, fo- women's football as opposed to the A-League and uh, women's football tabs. So those, those are right beside each other and it, it signifies a new dawn for the game. Now, Kick 360 we are adapting, learning and uh, moving forward. Uh, another situation that really isn't moving forward, it's somewhat stagnant, um, is the current stadium situation with uh, West United and MPL uh, stalwarts. South Melbourne, uh, last week, um, I woke up to the news that South Melbourne's Lakeside Stadium would be utilised by West United for seven home matches uh, for the season. Um, and they did state within that press release uh, that 
there isn't really many rectangular stadiums available in, in, in Melbourne and more broadly Victoria. Um, and they also did state Lakeside as a home to South Melbourne FC, a club that United has utmost respect for and wants to work with to grow the game of football in Victoria. South Melbourne, uh, oh, very, very upset, stated that, uh, well, in essence, uh, they put together a, a comprehensive argument uh, that they are direct rivals to Western United in terms of uh, Victorian football and uh, that they promised to build a rectangular stadium in Melbourne's West that hasn't been started yet. Well, it is starting next week uh, in about a month's time. Um, and I've also stated with a very, very strongly worded statement, um, South Melbourne can confirm that it will be exercising all rights to prevent Western United FC from playing A-League matches at Lakeside Stadium. Now, currently, it is the 29th of September, um, and the APL and South, and uh, West United have full intention to play those games. Uh, moreover, there is a veto argument within the trust agreement with South Melbourne, um, and they have to make a case as to how it hurts their business. This is not confirmed. Um, this is speculation from South Melbourne fans. i just like to say that. Um there's also been a lot of stuff stated by uh, West United and South Melbourne types on the radio waves in the past week as well. Um, but before we go into that, uh, we'll get Tom's first thoughts. He's very close to Lakeside Stadium. You know, I actually visited Lakeside on Friday and looked to Peach as well. Uh, but Tom, I guess it's a very complicated situation. I guess your two cents. Indeed. I guess for me, it's it's almost a torn... I'm, I'm sort of torn between the traditionalist football approach and then what I think will actually be better because the traditionalist inside me says Lakeside Stadium is South Melbourne's ground. The, the Lakeside Stadium is synonymous with South Melbourne as a football club and I can totally understand the concerns of South Melbourne fans who don't want um, what is an A-League club and a a franchised A-League club, as they like to say, <laughs> um, sort of taking their stadium um, and playing there when they they've had so much history there they've 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 played they obviously play the NPL games there etc so it's it's an important sort of centerpiece to the club but the other side of me suggests that western united who are essentially don't have a home right now could really benefit from playing games at lakeside stadium because it's more purpose built for football than the stadiums that they've been playing at in the past. I think you only have to look at um at the GMHBA Stadium in Geelong as an example of that, where it's essentially an AFL stadium where the fa- the fans aren't very um aren't very close to the pitch. It's not conducive for a good atmosphere. Whereas I think Lakeside Stadium would be better for that. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But I can definitely see both sides to the argument, and it will um it will definitely continue to drag on for quite some time until it's resolved, I think. And I guess, Lucas, I guess your thoughts, uh, you're obviously involved in NPL circles and uh, it's a very complicated uh, scenario. And I guess sort of your take on it from from an outsider's perspective, not being based in Victoria. Yeah, um, as a, I was expecting to come on here and be the outsider, being the only one advocating for for South Melbourne. To be honest, um, I definitely see where they're coming from. Western United came into this league with their point of difference being we are going to have this stadium. That's a main, re- a massive reason why they were chosen over not only South Melbourne but obviously Team Eleven, and they haven't been able to offer that for 
a few years. Sure, now we're turning soil, but that means they're going to be, what, five years into existence without having a home base. And that has stagnated the league in Melbourne to a massive degree. If South Melbourne came in, South Melbourne was the closest thing to Western Sydney when they came in. They would have come in and been a team that already has a fan base and that would have grown. Whereas West United are pretty much basing themselves off of, uh, we know that there's going to be big growth in, growth in the area. And as much as that seems harsh, the stats of their attendances backs that up. Their, their attendance haven't been good enough for A-League level. So I understand maybe the way that they went about it with the statement isn't, uh, was a, some would say it was a bit over the top, but at the same time, Western United in their statement, like you mentioned, Neil, are saying, oh, we want to work with South Melbourne. Well, clearly they haven't because it seemed from South Melbourne's reaction, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like they've been blindsided to an extent. I will, I will provide more insight uh, in, into the sort of decision-making. I've been listening to all, consuming all forms of media from Greek radio stations to, to Football Nation Radio's broadcast last night. And that was actually a very good interview uh, conducted with South Melbourne's chairman. The, the crux of the argument, what I gauge from from Chris Pelvanis, Nick Mykousis as well, who is the uh, president of South Melbourne, is that in essence, uh, they looked at Chernside, uh, South, well, West United, they looked at Chernside's Park in uh, Western Melbourne. Um, that wasn't fit for purpose. Uh, they also uh, looked at uh, Melbourne Knights, which we haven't even talked about. They also made a statement uh, as well, stating that there were no, you know, formal discussions with the club uh, as to, you know, utilizing that stadium uh, as a home for or temporary home for Western United. And um, personally, I, I'm not entirely sure about that statement, to be honest. Uh, formalized discussions would have to entail looking at the ground, realistically speaking, uh, and, and and sort of seeing what it would entail. And I'm not sure if those talks really got to, the, to that uh, level in terms of conversation. Uh, also, it must be stated that there are certain regulations that Western United looked at, um, being I think a thousand watts lighting, something along those. I'm not lighting. I'm not, I'm not a lighting expert in any stretch of the imagination. Um, and also the adequate Wi-Fi, which South Melbourne can easily upgrade, and that's why it's deemed a viable stadium for a a league purposes. Uh, it seems as if this South Melbourne Lakeside Stadium situation took uh, place over a matter of a week. And on the Wednesday, Thursday evening or Wednesday evening, West United decided to inform South Melbourne that this would be taken. Uh, Talks seem to have been through the trust entirely. And uh, as West United contend, there, were, there was no contact or no assurances that they couldn't host games at the stadium due to South Melbourne's veto agreement, which either to me sounds like a mistake on the trust part or they have just neglected it entirely. Because I do, I do think there will be mechanisms in place to ensure that A-League games have, will not be able to be played at Lakeside Stadium. How this will play out over the next couple of weeks remains to be seen. It's getting ugly. Uh, and I think listening to the South Melbourne chairman yesterday and hearing how eloquently spoken he was and sort of how you know he didn't view this as a sort of huge spat was encouraging to me. And I think there's a lot of room for transparency. Yeah, Absolutely. I think um, as well, one thing that this could mean is I think West United, as much as they have the derbies of victory and of City, I don't think it's really got the heat. One day, hopefully, I, you expect one day South Melbourne, whether to be by promotion or if eventually um, they're allowed into the A-League, they'll have a rivalry. And I feel like it's a little 
little seed. It's reminiscent, or oh, I'm a Tottenham fan, of uh, Arsenal encroaching into North London. It has a bit of a history, which I think maybe down the line could be important for Western United in establishing their identity. I'm not, I'm not from Melbourne. I'm not an expert on how um, divided those lines are, but I feel like this could be an important little um, detail that down the line sort of sparks a rivalry. 100%, yeah. Completely. Um, yeah, so I think we'll see how that plays out. Uh, Essendon Fields are also uh, looking to be used by West United as well, which is another topic to, topic to delve into um, in terms of training facilities. I understand that. Um, that would make sense to me, to be honest, considering that there is um, a lot of uh, connections with uh, the club from West United's perspective. Chris Pelavanis was formerly at Essendon as well. Some other personnel were also there. Not too much to really comment there. I don't think the outrage is warranted, to be honest, but it is what it is. Uh, they've, got, they've obviously got that George Cross facility and that's been utilized. I think it's customary for us to touch on the uh, the Four Corners documentary on Monday, which, uh, well, a league of their own, they describe, um, put, providing insight into the foreign ownership of uh, Australian football clubs. Um, the clubs that were profile were Melbourne City, Adelaide United, Brisbane Raw, and Sydney FC. Uh, and the owners of those prospective clubs of the City Football Group. Um, who knows for Adelaide? Uh, <laughs> fronted by Piet van der Poel, uh, the backroom group for Brisbane, and David Traktkovenko uh, for uh, Sydney FC. Uh, there'll be an opinion piece out uh, as this podcast will go out from Nicholas Rapolo stating his, uh, his opinion on the matter. Sort of, yeah, the information has been provided in the past, but this is also a very pressing topic that must be discussed within the realms of Australian football. It's very fitting that I got both of you to come on the podcast tonight because I know you have very differing opinions in, in the matter, in the way and in, in manner in which Four Corners was presented. I'll start off with Lucas. Um, you are based in the state where one of these clubs have a mystery surrounding its ownership. Uh, your thoughts on how it was presented and uh, obviously, there were comments from Greg Griffin, the former co-owner of the club. Yeah, um, I think uh, it's obviously. I feel like it should be more public who the owners are. I don't think, and but the fact of the matter is that's been a topic that's been rumbling around for a while. Val uh, McGlatchio has written a few articles about that, so that's the part of it that I think is wrong. Is that it's sort of being presented in a way that. It's new information when reality is not. However, um, I think a lot of the reaction to it is just a bit of people sort of getting upset for the sake of it. The fact of the matter is if we want football to be a mainstream sport, we can't overreact every time a sector of the media talks about it. They're not going to be talking about, oh, this guy scored a a hat-trick, blah, blah, blah. This guy did this. That will come, but you need to take your wins with your losses. At the end of the day, they're talking about a topic that is a hot topic within football and a hot topic within sport. There's, we can't be too offended. One of our um, own uh, uh, Harvard Pestinger did a tweet about this, basically saying um, football fans thinking it runs out to get us. Think a bit more po- positively and who knows, the game might grow like we all want it to. And I think that's a f- spectacular point because we can't, overreact to every, not every attack or pointing out a negative is a slide on the game. Sometimes this is an issue within football. It's also an issue with wider sport. I mean, Marvel Stadium was owned by Etihad Airways for a long time. And if you're saying that, oh, 
uh, CFG owning cities is an issue, is an issue, then that is also another issue because they're obviously um, owned by the same people. So I don't think you can say that this is an attack just for no reason. In, in my view, I'm not sure if how, um, Tom, you might have a, a, a different opinion. Yeah, um, for me, what I would say is, look, I, I think those points are valid. Absolutely, I think on the um, on the point that um, that so we've sort of got to take the good with the bad. I understand that, but what I thought that the documentary failed to do was it failed to really provide a decent link between some of these atrocities um, committed by these individuals overseas and what the actual link is between them and like these bad things that they do in their spare time and how that actually has any sort of link to A-League clubs, especially with regards to like David Traktovenko, like what him banking with like Vladimir Putin essentially makes him like a bad person in the A-League, just like bad all of a sudden. I didn't appreciate the way that that was... um, that was sort of presented. I also didn't appreciate the way that Four Corners um, sort of sort of presented this as an issue that is just involved within the A League. Like, if you're gonna if you're gonna commission a documentary that covers foreign ownership in sports or, or foreign money being injected into Australian sport in general, I think in terms of providing a a documentary which fully represents the the entire spectrum of the issue you've got to cover um you've got to cover what goes on in other codes and that's why i labeled it as a hit piece because we're we're too used to seeing this in australian football is people who don't understand anything about the game trying to bring it down and we've seen this in the past with reporting from other mainstream media organizations and then we've got essentially like like i'm not trying to sort of um trivialize what sheikh mansoor is doing in the middle east or whatever like they're terrible issues they they should be brought to light absolutely this stuff has been in the media for about eight years (laughs) why now like (laughs) that's that's what i want to know as well so um it it was surprising i don't think it's a big deal though like i think sort of three days after the um the documentary, no one's really talking about it too much anymore. So um, I don't think it will make any big difference in terms of how people see the A-League. Um, it just was sort of perplexing as to the timing of it and why the A-League was the only thing covered when other leagues, such as the AFL, um, willingly accept sponsorship money from human rights um, ridden, uh, human rights abuse ridden countries like Qatar Um who are obviously hosting the World Cup next year, and they um, they obviously allowed the Sheikh um, owned company Etihad to sponsor their stadium in Melbourne. So, I think if you're gonna if you're gonna present a documentary on human rights abuses and foreign ownership and foreign money coming into the A League, make it sort of a broader spectrum rather than. Um, rather than specifically focusing on the A-League because I think that would have um, made it more or less disingenuous and sort of got less people on offside. But I can, I can definitely see both sides of the argument. I think the context has to be applied in the sense that Australian football fans are very on edge from what we've had to deal with in the past from the mainstream media trying to bring down our game from 
especially people who don't understand or know anything or care about the game. Yeah, I, I think you're completely right in, in that realm um, of sort of what about three? I do think in a scenario there are links, there are definitive links that could be identified to towards sort of foreign ownership within the A League, uh, well, A leagues compared to, to other leagues, and no doubt uh, of a mind that there are certain parties within Australian football that have poor uh, human rights. Um, Situations, and I must say that the information uncovered by Four Corners, which is the essentially the only piece of investigative journalism that they undertook um, in finding out that one of the Bakery's uh, shareholders is what well, was currently or is currently imprisoned for match fixing, um, that needs to be brought to light. Um, the, a lot of issue, a lot of stuff's been brought about, sort of this fit and proper test that has been in, employed by Football Australia and also the Australian Professional Leagues. Um, there were missed opportunities uh, to really provide resolution. Uh, I'm not sure if Four Corners really do that. There were missed opportunities to provide um, any sort of insight from previous ownership regimes. Uh, Martin Lee would be the perfect case study, to be honest. Uh, his disintegration of the Newcastle Jets uh, is a very pressing topic that that probably should have been discussed. That's been dealt with in the past 10 months, though, by the new consortium leading the league with the APL. And I don't really like how they twisted it in a way in that, oh, the foreign clubs now own the league. This is bad. I don't think that's true. Um, obviously, it's a fact that the foreign clubs, many of them do have a significant stake uh, within the APL by benefactor that they do own the clubs. However, that being said, uh, Four Corners' documentary served its purpose to inform the Australian public about the ownership issues from, in terms of the foreign realm within Australian football. That served its purpose. Um, the way that it was executed, some feel wasn't justified. I can understand the apathy from an Australian viewpoint. Um, however, these issues must be discussed. The question I still have is why? Um, coming from the host broadcaster of the A-League from last season, uh, it's not a pot shot at them, but that's just a fact. Um, but, you know, it remains to be seen uh, sort of how... Football Australia or the APL may respond in future um, license, you know, cases where the foreign owner may be sort of interested in in, in taking up um, some capital in, in, in an A League club. There are other pressing issues to talk about, Absolutely. such as Stephen Taylor's retirement, <laughs> um, which is uh, which it was actually a bombshell. With all due respect, um, I think it really raised the question of this this whole COVID realm and. Your Wellington sort of relocating to to Australia for the for the upcoming season. Uh, basically, you stated I wasn't happy that we were playing in Australia. That's not a direct quote. Um, and essentially, it was if they had a long term contract in place, he would have played on. Which is very interesting to hear about, uh, Lucas. I guess you're taken, and also the Wellington Phoenixes as a whole. You know, Stephen Taylor walked down on the next on the eve of the last season. Um, and, well, not the eve in September, but uh, and then he signed in India, came back, asked for a new contract, wasn't granted it, and now all of a sudden he's retired and has put Wellington in a very dangerous predicament. Yeah, I think to be fair, I think it's very um, understandable. I, I've, I'm actually surprised it ha- hasn't happened more with the Wellington. The fact that so many of their players have just willingly re- relocated, and especially like the, the Kiwi-based players have moved away from. 
a lot of them have brought their families, but they've had to relocate for a long time. And these guys have signed contracts thinking they're going to Wellington and have spent a year in Wollongong. Now this season, they probably thought at a period that they were going to play in Wellington a bit longer after they finished the season there last year. Um, now they, it looks like they're going to have to be in Australia a bit longer. So it's it's understandable, obviously, with what happened last year as well. And then, like you say, is moved to India. I think it maybe highlights it a bit more that people think it's a it's a problem with with him. I, I guess is is sort of the accusation. But I think it's understandable. These people are coming from the other side of the world, thinking they're getting a certain lifestyle, and aren't getting it. So I I don't I don't blame it at all. And I'm actually very surprised. I think they've done a good job, Wellington. Obviously, they lost a few players this year, but keeping their squad last year, on the whole, um, for a team that consistently as almost required a rebuild every year. Um, I think they've actually done a good job in keeping most of their players together. Yeah, I think I think definitely. I guess, Tom, your take on this whole Stephen Taylor situation, is it perhaps indicative of the lack, well, the, the poor management of the fitness? I think Jason Pine penned a very good piece on it, how it was entirely preventable. Um, but I guess, uh, is this worrying for the Knicks uh, they've, they've had their squad decimated in the past offseason with um just yeah. with um obviously Devia and Hemet departing among uh, others what situation are are they in now I think the Knicks are in a bit of trouble if I'm honest I think Stephen Taylor it's worth mentioning he was phenomenal for the A-League I thought I thought he was a he was a really brilliant defender um having someone who had that Premier League experience obviously playing at Newcastle as well he was really quite a brick wall at the back for, for Wellington. Obviously getting a bit older now, but losing him, losing Cam Devlin as well, I think it must be said. Losing Ulysses Davila, who was, in my opinion, the best player in the league last season. It's it's going to be tough to recover from that, especially, I believe, what, the season before they lost Kakache and they lost Saprit Singh. Season before that, they lost Roy Krishna. Um like the thing is with Wellington is they always find a way to sort of produce these really good young New Zealanders. So I think that's it. That's where this club is going and that's where they've built their identity. And I honestly think Wellington bring a lot to the A-League and a lot more than people give them credit for. I think they also signed, um, I believe it's Nicholas Pennington. I think they signed him from, um, from Serie C um, who's played a lot of games. I think he's only a 22 year old Australian in, player who's played over 100 games in the the Italian third division obviously in Europe so it'll be interesting to see how he goes but yeah I think I think the Wellington Phoenix they'll, they'll sort of prioritize youth development as they typically do and I'm sure we'll get a few um a few gems come in um should well as a result of this Stephen Taylor leaving yeah I think and that's a similar yeah. background to um Piscopo as well in terms of playing a uh, in terms of the lower leagues. But the reason I, I, even though they have lost a lot of players, I, I sort of back them, is I think I've written off Wellington about every year for the last five or six years. Like you say, you sort of have to write them off at your own peril because mm. they always find a way to recover. Every year people say, oh, they're going to finish 11th, 12th. Well, in the last year or so, obviously it was 11th, 12th, before that was 9th or 10th. But they find a way to recover. Last year, even though they didn't quite get there into the, into the finals, it was... Very unlucky that they didn't on the last day. They well, uh, well and truly could have if uh, the Wanderers had done a better job at uh, High March. So yeah. I, I just find it hard to write them off 
considering Definitely. every year they, they lose all these players. Yeah. I think it's worth mentioning as well that they've got a phenomenal coach there with Ufuk Tala as well. He's, I, I think he's one of the best coaches in the A-League. I think he really has done a great job with the resources he's been given with that squad and he's done a brilliant job at bringing through some of these young players, um, obviously like Liberato Kakache and the likes of them as well. So you've got a lot of good young players coming through at Wellington um, every season really. So credit to Ufuk Talai and I'm sure they'll they'll be competitive again next season. They're definitely not going to be a team that people will just roll over for fun. So, 100%. 110%. Uh, moving into uh, the next topic, uh, there have been some signings this week. Henry Hall has signed for Brisbane, uh, played for Lions of Seaside in 2019 and 2020. I think may have, they may have that been under Warren Moon. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, also, uh, Jess, Lofthouse, Jess Lofthouse, one of uh, the uh, NPL Queensland Gold, Golden Boys uh, of Olympic FC, is now signed for Brisbane as well after being on trial uh, with them. Rene Crin has signed for the West United. Uh, which is a fantastic pickup for them. Uh, obviously, formerly of Inter Milan and Nantes and the likes of. Um, and also, Tom, uh, you also have something as well uh, for us as well on Roderick R- Miranda. Yes, absolutely. Roderick Miranda will be joining Victory, to my understanding. Um, obviously, he he appears to have resolved all the visa issues. He there were there were a lot of visa issues regarding getting that and also I think the quarantine arrangements in Australia were an issue but it's all resolved now it's a done deal and he will be joining Melbourne Victory and he will be a fantastic player under Tony Popovich in my opinion he um he was a really valuable asset at the start of the the 2017-18 season for Wolves under Nuno Espirito Santo obviously Lucas's <laughs> team's manager right don't, now. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> in the Premier League. Uh, fresh off that North London derby defeat, which we love to say. But, um, I'm still steam. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think Miranda, he, he lost his place about halfway through that season, but he was a really solid player for the first half of that season, obviously playing a pretty um, integral part in gaining valuable points for the team so they could get promoted to the Premier League. And I think his signing really indicates to me that Popovich is looking to play with a back three. Miranda played on the left of the back three for Wolves next to um, Connor Cody and Danny Batt in the championship. So I I think he'll be a brilliant asset. He's really good on the ball, tall, um, not afraid to carry the ball out from defence and not afraid to play long passes either. So I think he'll be a very valuable asset for Melbourne Victory. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Lucas, uh, if you've got any other points, uh, just go ahead. Yeah, I think um, just on uh, Popper's record with centre-backs, he's always had a good record about bringing new centre-backs into the league and also develop developing ones here. Um, this is a guy, he's only 30 years old. For a player of his experience to come here, as Tom mentioned, only been in the, um, with Wolves a few years ago. Um, but as you mentioned at the start, Neil, um, obviously work... Uh, closely with, with Robbie Cornthwaite and he's raved many, many a times about how Popper helped his game and how much his training sessions are sort of focused on improving defenders. Um, I think this is going to be a big signing. They've had a few in the past couple of years, Victory, centre-backs who you thought, oh, this is the guy, this is the guy. But I, I'm, I'll be very surprised if this transfer doesn't work out well. Yeah, I think on that as well, it's... 
every season when Victory signs a foreign defender, we always compare them to Mathieu Delpierre. So it's really <laughs> it's really difficult to live up to his standards. Obviously, a Victory medalist won the um, won the championship with us in 2014-15, even though he missed the first half of the season due to injury. But some of the guys we've brought in since then really haven't hit the mark, I think. You look at Tim Hoogland, uh, Georg Niedermeyer, um, even going back sort of, yeah, like really we've only Alan had, Barrow. Yeah, Alan Barrow. Oh, yeah. Um, obviously, Reese Williams was fantastic when we won the, the title from fourth place. But um, uh, apart from that, we've really struggled to have that commanding defender. And really, I think we've got two now with, um, with Miranda and um, Matt Speranovic, obviously, as well. Who will um who will look to play probably in the middle of that back three if Papa decides to choose to go with that? I've just received word from um the official FFA Cup account uh, that uh, this is a quote from them regarding the the, the round of thirty two that's being played in Victoria. Hey Neil, being the highest, <laughs> I just thought I was going to say hey Neil. Um, hey Neil, being the highest uh, level national cup competition for the country. Four Victorian clubs supported by Football Australia and the Victorian government will begin training across the next two weeks in preparation for their respective FFA Cup final rounds campaigns. Meaning that semi-professional NPL clubs are training during lockdown, which is superb. Absolutely superb. Wow. And I, I thought I'd just say on the side um, that these games are looking to be completed in um, late October, early November. But this is a fantastic move, and I really hope that this could be replicated in New South Wales as well. Um, because uh, to get these final rounds done and dusted before the end of the year would be fantastic. And in essence, you actually have a level playing field because uh, you've obviously got the MPO clubs essentially in their preseason now, and you've also got the A League clubs in their preseason, which is uh, obviously the A League clubs still have the upper hand, but. You know, I don't see why not. I mean, as we saw on the weekend, yeah, you know, Flor- Florian on the weekend ran Adelaide very, very closely. Um, so that's going to be a theme, I think. It always is in these early rounds that Adelaide, that, that the uh, A League clubs are underdone. Um, but yeah, that's great news that we're going to be able to get that out of the way. This will be uh, a very probably one of uh, the FA's biggest achievements if they manage to get this um, competition crammed in, despite everything. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's even the most exciting sort of cup competition that we've had in recent memory. Obviously, Sydney Olympic is scheduled to take on Sydney FC. Uh, Melbourne City taking on South Melbourne. And also, I think uh, you have some really enticing clashes in, um, you know, South Australia and, and beyond. I think there's a game tonight, if I'm not mistaken, between uh, ECU, uh, Zundalup and... Olympic. Uh, Adelaide, yeah, Olympic, Adelaide yeah. Olympic. Yeah, yeah. I was just about to say, and I'm pretty sure it's Adelaide Olympic. Um, but yeah, a, a very superb sort of sort of a thing to come to. But uh, on the topic of the FFA Cup, uh, there was a game on the weekend that we uh, that we had the luxury of watching. Uh, Floria Athena against the uh, no preseason games Adelaide United. Um, they struggled, Adelaide. Very rusty. Uh, it, it was a game in which the NPL players looked better than the A League players, um, which was quite uh, a surprise. A League men's players. Um, I think defensively there were teething issues to iron out, but that obviously helped as they progressed into the extra time and whatnot. I think eventually the Florida's legs just sort of burned out a little bit. But uh, Lucas, uh, your thoughts on that clash? Uh, I actually sort of turned off after it was 3-1, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, to preface this, 
United are very underdone. They a lot of the new players they got in uh, have only just started training. That's why Nick Ansel wasn't there. Uh, Cassini Yangi didn't play because he was unfit. Plus, you got Morgan Goodwin who had off-season surgeries, but they were poor. They were very poor. Um, I think they didn't cope well with the pitch as well. Um, you could tell that they're used to playing on nice lush pitches with um, their training ground out at Playford and uh, uh, Highmarsh, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, there were a few players who didn't play up to their potential. Um, I was very uh, impressed by Bernardo, the 17-year-old son of Cassio, of course. Um, he looked very sharp um, on the ball and very positive. Um, but overall, uh, I think I think Colby will be very happy to have that game out of the way uh, because it, <laughs> after after a good start of obviously going in front. Um, the longer that game wore on, it looked like Florit were really knocking the door. And in the end, obviously, the scoreline blew out a bit in extra time. But, uh, yeah, I think United will be very happy to get that one off the road, um, get 120 minutes into the legs of a lot of these players. And now they can move on to the next round of, uh, well, they're considering renaming the FA Cup. I think Adelaide Cup might have uh, <laughs> might have been mentioned. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the yeah no, it's... I think I think Simon Hill and, and Daniel McBrain did a fantastic uh, job on commentary. But uh, yeah, Tom, I know you didn't catch the game, so I'm not going to ask you anything <laughs> regarding this. <laughs> I think in terms of this, though, just in general with the FA Cup, it's, it's a good opportunity to see these young players play. Um, the likes of Bernardo, as you mentioned, whether he gets much of a go during the A-League season will be, I guess, determined by how well he performs when he's given the chance. But Obviously, if he keeps performing to that standard, then it's difficult to at least not see him um, on an extended bench during the A-League season. And that's the beauty of the FFA Cup is you really get these success stories. I think with Craig Goodwin missing, you, you get these opportunities for young players to step in. We all know the quality of Craig Goodwin. He's obviously one of the best players in the A-League by a mile. And yeah, Bernardo, from all accounts, seemed really good. But while we're on that as well, um, obviously he's the is the son of Cassio. Um, Jack George, another journalist at Kick360, wrote a phenomenal article um, that I would recommend checking out. I, I believe it was on the Inner Sanctum um, about the importance of fullbacks in general. And he interviewed Cassio, who's Bernardo's dad. So I'd recommend giving that a check. Um, so therefore, it makes sense for us to get a, 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 an exclusive Bernardo interview on Kick360. Precisely. Precisely right. <laughs> Adelaide, if you're listening, uh, yeah, please please light it up. Uh <laughs> Tete Yangi uh, has moved to Ipswich Towns under 23s. Um, quite surprising, to be honest. A master stroke by uh, his agent, uh, I have to say. But I believe the Yankees do have a, a British passport, so that, that would have helped him. Um, very good move for, for Tete, and, and congratulations to him. Uh, Denny Urich. All right, this is going to be fun. Um, he is playing currently for Croatia's biggest club, well, arguably one of the biggest clubs in uh, Dinamo Zagreb. Uh, signed for them in the off season and was, um, I think, signed for them in January actually, and, and was uh, recalled from his loan uh, to play for Dinamo Zagreb. He has stated in the Croatian media this week, it has not been decided yet. Well, this is actually if I, I my preface this by stating this is if he will play for Australia or Croatia. Uh, Denny is the brother of Tommy Juric. Um, it has not been decided yet, but now that I am a senior player, I would like to play for the Croatian national team. I spent my teenage years in Croatia. After all, we're runners-up in the world. My heart beats for Croatia. I've had extensive extensive discussions with with, with football players in Australia and and beyond. Uh, 
okay, in terms of our striking st- stocks, let's be realistic, right? McLaren's not playing in these in these upcoming qualifiers. Um, we've got Adam Taggart who's struggling for former Japan. We've got Lecky utilizes striker. Lecky, ah, uh, kinda. Uh, he's, in, he's always... in that qualification, that first qualification period, uh, Arnie sort of used him there, and I think um, that's indicative of the. Uh, Lower quality of our strikers, yeah. to be honest, in comparison yeah. to other positions. I think the naiveness from 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 the Twitter sphere has been quite ridiculous. Denny Rich walks into a soccer squad today. Um, if I'll be honest, he could have walked into the squad last season when he yeah. scored eleven goals and twenty odd games for Supernick as well. Um, however, uh. Tom, your take on this Denny Urich situation? Will he yeah. even make a Croatian squad? I understand you've got quite a lot of insight into sort of how Dinamo Zagreb are shaping up at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. This is a story that I've actually been following for quite some time and I've been really interested in it because um, I was perplexed as to why Urich wasn't selected for the Oli Roos to go to the Olympics because he was a 1997 um, kid. I believe that he was in... He was blocked by his club to go to the Olympics. Yeah. And he was selected for the June qualifiers, which was those three games. There meant to be four. Uh, no, however many games. But the one of the games got cancelled because one of the players tested positive for the other team. Yeah. Which I don't think has been covered enough. That's that's a bit horrible. Um, but yeah, Denny Urich has been courted by Australia. That That is a fact. Yeah. He even spoke about it on a, a Graham Arnold in the last press conference. Anyway, go on. Yeah, Just trying to correct your point, like a, like being very annoying, but that's I've, okay. I've followed this for a while, obviously. So I was really interested to ask Arnie about it at um one of the last press conferences. And he said, Denny was spoken to for this camp and he's one that we've got our eye on. It's a player that we expect will want to play for Australia. I think the key word there is expect and want. It appears that the exact opposite of that is true now, unfortunately. Um, as someone who's sort of watched a bit of Denny play, he is a very, very good number nine, honestly. He is very good. Um, he's he's a player who's about six foot three tall, but his best assets come in the form of, of counterattacks and getting in the right positions. I'd, I'd, if I were to compare him to a player who everyone would know, I would say he's, he's probably like a six foot three Danny Ings in terms of his play style. He's more of someone that's going to like get in behind rather than like um, score headers, etc. So I think his play style is a bit deceptive because obviously you think someone who's that tall just going to like lump crosses into him, but no, he's 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 really good at getting in behind, really good at getting himself in the right positions. The parts of his game that he's got to work on is his link up and his heading, but he is a very very good number nine. He started on the weekend for um for Dinamo Zagreb who are one of the biggest clubs in Croatia, normally play in the Champions League, um, unfortunately got knocked out in the playoff round by Sheriff Tiraspol, who this morning actually beat Real Madrid. And then, um, so they're in the Europa League, but they've obviously produced players like Luka Modric, Mateo Kovacic, uh, Dani Olmo from Spain, who's at RB Leipzig now. He was there for about six years as well. It's a phenomenal club. So he, him being there and him playing quite consistently there, is a v- very good indication of where he sits, especially given that they've actually got um, a guy, Bruno Petkovic, who was the starting number nine at the Euros for Croatia. Sort of, he's competing directly with his spot. And on the weekend, they actually used Petkovic as a number 10 to sort of accommodate Juric in the team, which is a really good sign. So it will, it will be unfortunate if he chooses to play for Croatia. 
I don't think he'll get into the Croatian squad immediately, but he'll definitely be knocking on the door in the next couple of years. He's, he's very, very good, honestly. He is very good. And um, I think it will be a loss for Australia. But ultimately, if someone doesn't want to play for the Socceroos, that's their decision, unfortunately. And that's something that we're going to have to take. We were happy to take um, Harry Sutar and Martin Boyle. And unfortunately, the opposite um, appears to be happening to, happening to us here. But it will be an interesting story to follow, that's for sure. Yeah, very interesting story. Uh, I think it has to be said. And we'll see if uh, he does end up playing for Australia or Croatia or, or neither. We'll see what happens. Uh, Cameron Devlin made his debut over the weekend for Hearts and he's loved by all Hearts fans after making only two appearances for the Jan Tarts. Uh, yeah, I really wish James, James Reese was here to talk about it, considering he's our resident Scotland, Scottish Australian football expert. Um, but Lucas, in terms of uh, the reception that you've gotten uh, regarding to Cam Devlin, uh, there's also been a lot of talk about, you know, Gianni Stensness, of course, declaring for Australia. Uh, and those two midfielders have been compared in terms of their qualities that they provide. One of them being, of course, much taller than the other, but another one of them being extremely quick on the ball, technical, and also going in for those tackles. If you were to put them into a squad for the Socceroos, um, not both of them, pick one. Is it Gianni Stensness or Cameron Devlin? Who's higher up in the pecking order? I think I think Devlin for me. Uh, I think definitely now. Um, that might change. Um, but for me, uh, last season, um, Devlin looked phenomenal here. Um and I think he's just continuing that. We've seen a lot. Hearts have got a pretty strong record in terms of picking up um, Aussies. So Ben Garuccio, he's back now. He sort of struggled to break in uh, to their team a couple of years ago. Um, they seem to really take a lot of Aussies into into uh, their hearts. I'm not sure what it is. No pun intended. Um, but they seem to do uh, really well over there. And it's brilliant that he's already been um, greatly received. And he's really setting himself up. Uh, nicely for a for a gig in the Socceroos squad. Uh, we've spoken about it before, but there's a lot of um, central midfielders and a lot of guys that you wouldn't quite call a six, you wouldn't call quite call a ten, an eight and a half, a creative midfielder. We seem to have a lot of those in Australian football, um, which is a shame that we're having so many of these players in the same position and it's going to be hard to fit everyone in. Um, we've seen that last couple of years with Moe and Rogic trying to fit both, both of those in. Rogic obviously more of a natural ten. Um, but yeah, I think it's uh, brilliant that he's sort of landing himself in a pop, in a position that now we can really start to see him uh, break into an SPL club. Yeah, absolutely agree. I think I, I, I 100% agree. Devlin is definitely ahead of Stensness in the pecking order for me. I think Stensness has played more as a centre back as well um, for Viking FC or Viking something. In, yeah, um, Viking FC in Norway. Yeah, in Norway, correct. Um, and he also played on the right side of a back three for New Zealand at the Olympics. So I think given his height, he's obviously someone that might sort of transition his career into defence. Devlin is phenomenal, though. I have to agree. Devlin is brilliant. I, I really rate him. And he's something, as you sort of touched on there, he's different to the other midfielders we've got. Like if you look at Jean Rowe and you look at, say, Connor Metcalf, you look at Moy, Hrustich, they're all, as you sort of said, like eight and a half, eight sort of players. Whereas I, 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 I think Devlin is so good in a double six. I think he, he covers so much ground, which is really good to see from an Australian midfielder. And I think it is really something that suits the um, the Scottish league as well. So it, it will be really interesting to see if he manages to um, sort of lock down a place in Hearts' uh, team. Because 
I think he can he can play in Europe, to be honest. And I, I think it was unfortunate he didn't get more game time at the Olympics as well. Personally, I am a big fan of Graham Arnold, but I think I think in the Spain game that the, the double pivot of Metcalf and Genro should have been given a rest, and Bacchus and Devlin should have played um, just to give um, make sure that Metcalf and Genro were fully fit and fully. Um, fully rested for the Egypt game. But I guess that's a um, hypothetical and something we can't change now. But, yeah. And, yeah, I'm a bit wary of um, hyping up a guy who's still pretty young. But he's so, like we were saying, so different from any other six we've got. And also ones we've had, Milligan and Yednak, obviously, fantastic um, for their time with the Socceroos. But I I think he's a much better passer than either of those guys were. I think he's got the ability also to create from deep, which is something we haven't had. I think the player, he's obviously hasn't quite got the height of him, but I think the player that he mostly reminds me of um, Australian-wise is is uh, Vinny Grella. I think he's, while being a tough tackling midfielder, he also can get on the ball and sort of dictate play from deep. Um, so if he continues in this trend, I think he's going to be a, a very strong player for the, the Socceroos. Yeah. I think I, I get into trouble a bit for comparing... Uh, Australian players to players in Europe. I think I called Aidan Frostich the Australian Joshua Kimmich and Jackson Irvine like Gundawan or something. We're so, part of the Asian Confederation, mate, and every single time we play any team in Asia, they <laughs> always have one player that's the the Q80 Messi or something like that. So I think we need to do more of it. <laughs> Precisely. We need to do more of it ourselves. I think last time we came up against the Vietnamese Gareth Bale. So Yeah. <laughs> It's always, um, yeah. always Simon Hill just yeah, with with his little tidbits. It's just it's just fun. Yeah. Like, Part of me wonders if he makes them up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll, uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll message you to message Simon and see if he uh, see if he agrees. But no, no I think uh, yeah, I think Cammy has done a fantastic job, and let's hope he can he continue that he can continue that form and moving forward. Uh, that that sort of wraps us up for this week uh, on the Kickcast podcast. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed. Uh, listening to to us three banter for about an hour, uh, and also discuss pressing football topics, uh, which is the most important thing. Uh, on the K360 website, we've got a lot of content for you as well. Of course, we mentioned that long read before. We've got a league, uh, weekly wrap-up. I've actually managed to do a long read on Stefan Valentini, uh, currently... Check it out. Uh, yeah, <laughs> currently playing for Avondale FC. Uh, of course, there's the article on the dramatic rebrand that the... Uh, Australian professional leagues have, have uh, decided to do. Uh, there's also an article on blind football featuring uh, comments from David Connolly, uh, from Jack George. Uh, also a, a very interesting article on Dennis Jondro's successful start at Toulouse. Uh, and of course you have the uh, breakthrough stars for the 2021-22 campaign. And that article profiles Max Caputo, Fifteen-year-old debutante who made his debut at the Melbourne Derby uh, in late, well, early June, actually. Uh, that's it from myself, Neil Simons, uh, Lucas, and Tom. Uh, we'll leave it to you for any last words. Cheers, lads! Thanks for listening. It was a pleasure to be on the podcast once again this week. Had a great time. Yeah, great to great to always hear your dulcet tones, Neil. Um, and I, I, I was half expecting. Don't, 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 don't even don't even start that. I was, half, I was half expecting halfway through that pod when you said you got a message from the FFA Cup. I, I actually thought you were about to say that uh, you're leaving us because you you've got a commentary gig with them. No, no, no. <laughs> maybe ma- if you, maybe next week. Paramount, if you want to sign me up, uh, feel free. But uh, there there are definitely uh, 
more viable candidates to to take on that role, to be honest. Uh, but uh, that's not a discussion for today or tomorrow. Uh, we will see uh, how it progresses. Uh, keep the uh, dot and black slashes going. The A-League's in a new era. And uh, we're looking forward to the A-League men, A-League women, and A-League youth uh, for the upcoming season and beyond. Uh, that's been the KickCast podcast, and we'll be back with you, uh, if not next week, the week after. 